Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 110, The Start of the Balkan Tragedy. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. We have Marian Stoyanov, Jordan Howarth, and an increased pledge by Vladimir Lucas. Really, I'm kind of blown away. Thanks a ton to you all for making this march actually tied as the largest ever increase for Patreon pledges, and it's only the 10th uh, since the first month when I set up Patreon back in June of 2016. Um, I recently went kind of full-on freelance. I'm now a full-time freelancer, which I hope will mean I'll have a lot more time to experiment with things around the podcast to try to create some more kind of special content for you all. If you have any ideas and things, feel free to reach out, but I'm hoping to use this new kind of work flexibility I have to do more and to really justify all the, the the kindness that you all have shown me. So thanks so much to you all. One other quick announcement. Uh, this is pretty time sensitive, but there is a play that's going on from tomorrow, March 11th to March 15th of 2020, called The Brief Life and Mysterious Death of Boris III, King of Bulgaria. That's going to be going at the Out of Forest Theater in London. So if you're in London, I would check it out. I mean, you know, literally a biography of Boris III is what got me interested in Bulgarian history in the, in the first place. The man is a very fascinating human being, uh, had a very fascinating life. And so I'm always sad I won't, won't be in London and won't be able to attend, but I hope uh, this play gets revised somewhere or I can even just read it sometime. But if you're in London, definitely try to go check that out. All right, so let's get into it. Last time, we covered the auspicious incident in which Sultan Mahmud II finally destroyed the Janissary Corps and established a new Turkish-dominated Western-style army. This helped usher in further shifts in Bulgaria, allowing for the growth of wealthy sheep herders, traders, and others who would supply this new army with all the clothes and food and basically everything it needed. But unfortunately for the Sultan, this came just in time, this shift, to weaken his military as the great powers were discussing serious intervention in the Greek War. So not the best time for a major military transition. That Western intervention began at sea when the Ottoman and Egyptian navies were destroyed at the Battle of Navarino, instantly shifting the course of the war in favor of the Greeks and, well, not to say it wasn't pretty shifted already, but further shifting the naval power balance in the eastern Mediterranean and showing that even the Egyptian navy, let alone the Ottoman navies, just could not compete. Soon, Russia declared war and invaded, getting within three days' march of Constantinople. The great powers began a long series of conferences to decide what would become of Greece and other Ottoman territories. Ultimately, it was decided that Greece would be independent, but under a Western king, though the first candidate turned down the job. Russia was also now in de facto control of Wallachia and Moldavia. To make matters worse for the Ottomans, France was now taking over Algeria, while Serbia forced the Sultan to accept Miloš Obranović as hereditary prince there, removing the obligations of Serbian peasants to their former Ottoman lords, expanding Serbian territory by giving it some land from Vidin and Bosnia, and further expanding its autonomy. 
In addition, Serbia had actually made a pile of cash on the Russian war by selling to both sides and obtaining more concessions from the Ottomans in exchange for financial support. Remember, I mentioned before that you know, while Greece was broke, you know, already in severe debt, even as its revolution is going on, Serbia, on the other hand, well, at least its prince Obrenovich was extremely rich. And so Obrenovich was able to use his position as prince of Serbia to get rich and then to use his wealth to leverage the Ottomans to say, okay, I'll lend you this money or I'll forward you this or I'll, I'll you know, sell this to you in your time of need in exchange for more concessions which is pretty interesting. It's kind of further showing maybe the wisdom of Obrenovich's approach to gaining gradual Serbian autonomy as opposed to Kara George's approach of full independence or nothing. But that's another discussion. One last note here, that Russian war also led to as many as 250,000 Bulgarians going into exile as the Russian army left Bulgarian territory following the Treaty of Adrianople. So this is probably another one of those cases, we saw this many times in Serbia, where a friendly foreign army takes over much of your territory. A lot of people are pro that force, right? They, they maybe help them out, they voice their support. And then when a peace treaty is signed and that army leaves, suddenly those people are left in a very precarious situation and could face retribution from local notables and others, so they feel they have to go. Or alternatively, maybe these people thought that this war was finally going to give Bulgaria its independence, and when that didn't happen, felt disillusioned. I mean, I'm sure there were thousands and tens of thousands of reasons these people left, but we're seeing another case of many, many exiles. Also, just as all of this was happening, a Bulgarian named Georgi Mamarchev was attempting to organize an uprising. Mamarchev had fought with the Russians for decades and had led a Bulgarian corps in their army during the recent invasion. Seeing his chance in this moment of Ottoman weakness, he aimed to lead an uprising centered around Slevin, Kotel, and Ternoval. However, the Russians swiftly put an end to this by arresting Mamarchev and only releasing him once he agreed to abandon the whole endeavor. The Russian reaction is hardly surprising. What is surprising is Mamarchev's bad misreading of the political movement. Every action Russia has taken against the Ottomans has been justified by some rhetoric around preserving the order or protecting the Orthodox population, and Mamarchev had none of the political backing the Greeks had. And so the great powers had just brought about a conclusion to nearly a decade of fighting in the broader Ottoman area, and they were no mood to start all of this all over again. So I think this is also another case where, you know, thinking that Russia's primary interest is to help kind of liberate and protect the people of the Balkans, I think is a misreading, right? Russia is playing a game of realpolitik here, and this shows it, that, you know, when the Ottomans were very weak and when the Bulgarians were interested, well, this Bulgarian, in possibly organizing an uprising, obtaining independence, Russia says absolutely not you know, we've invested a lot of political capital into this moment, into getting what we want, and we don't want to rock the boat now that we're winning. So following all of this, Mamarchev settled in Silistra and was eventually elected its first mayor. But even if the Russians had not quashed the revolt, it's pretty debatable how successful the revolt would have been at this moment. Well, because as we know, the Ottomans were now kind of getting out of their other military obligations. Perhaps they could have crushed the Bulgarian uprising. We've always seen that it's been much easier for them to crush Bulgarian uprisings relative to those in places like Serbia and Greece. So 
It's a hypothetical. Now, following this period, in around 1830, a Russian scholar named Yuri Vanellin visited Bulgaria to conduct research as a part of his historical and ethnographic work on the Bulgarians. To quote historian Mark Mazower, quote, he found them apathetic and unresponsive to his inquiries. It was scarcely clear what it meant to call oneself Bulgarian. Again, it must be emphasized that the Bulgarian National Revival had a very long way to go, and that national consciousness was still largely confined to a small elite. End quote. But why was this? Now, I want to take out a moment to kind of remind listeners, remind you all, of some of the principles of the creation of national groups. Now, the definition is a bit of a cliche at this point, but it's helpful to think of a nation as an imagined community. It exists in the minds of people, and it needs a way to get into those minds. We often just kind of assume that Bulgarians are Bulgarians, Greeks are Greeks, etc. But these identities are far more complex, as hopefully you've noticed when I talked in particular about the Greek uprising. I think that really showed just how complex Greek national identity was. So, in other words, think about it this way. You need a reason to feel like you're a member of a nation. But beyond that, you also need a, a reason to feel that you're kind of an active part of it. And that's where a key issue here, simultaneity, comes in. Now, I've mentioned briefly how newspapers played a critical role in making people feel that things are happening to all the members of a group at once. As a hypothetical, imagine, you know, if you have no idea what's happening to your co-nationals maybe a hundred kilometers away, let alone a few hundred kilometers, it's hard to imagine yourselves as being part of the same group, right? When to be part of the same group, things have to happen to you as a group. They need to happen to you at once. Whereas if it feels like things are happening to you and there's some other people elsewhere and you don't know what's happening to them, it's much harder for us psychologically to envision those far away people as being part of the same group as us. Because so much of a part of group identity is sharing experiences. And of course, once you get to the, you know, a group the size of a nation, of course, you can't all, you know, be in the same room and, you know, literally share that identical experience in person together. But information like that comes through things like newspapers really helps create that sense psychologically. And this also applies to globalization today. Think about how many more people feel like that things like climate change are happening to humanity all at once, and that this is getting more and more people to think about humanity as a whole and to think about humankind as a group that things are happening to because we have that sense that of simultaneity. But anyways, getting down a, a nation formation rabbit hole, getting back to Bulgaria. For now, this meant that the education and the national consciousness that was coming to some elites still had very little to do with most peasants. So again, we're about 1830, and you know, the, the national revival, it, it's starting to get going, but it's still confined to some elite groups. Now, often in Bulgaria, as elsewhere, those elites tend to kind of assume that the peasants will be with them without really understanding the peasant perspective with disastrous consequences. We're going to see time and time again, and we've already seen it a little bit, uh, where you know somebody just steps in, like remember Ioannis, uh, I forget his family name, but uh, the the Greek guy who who you know helped kick off the Greek national uprising, right? He rolls into Vlachia in Moldavia and proclaims an uprising, and just totally misreads 
the peasants and has no support from them whatsoever, but he thinks he does. He thinks they must be with him. And again, this is a a kind of pattern we're going to see time and time again. But some progress is being made. As in 1831, Kristaki Pavlovich, a man from Dupnica, created a school in Svistov. So, you know, it's good. One of the ways that national identity is spreading is the creation of schools like this. And very ironically, as I was writing this episode, I was visiting my in-laws who live in Dupnica or from there, and we actually drove by a school named after Hristaki Pavlovich literally minutes after I read about this event and learned about his existence and things. So, anyway, it's just a, a funny little moment there. Now, I want to go into a bit of detail about the changes occurring in Wallachia and Moldavia following the Treaty of Adrianople and entering the decade of the 1830s. Now that Russia was effectively in control there, a line from Misha Glenny about the Russian perspective on Wallachia and Moldavia, well, but really applies to the whole rest of the Balkans and to the world as a whole, is apt. He wrote, quote, The fate of such a crucial region could not possibly be left to the people who happened to live there. End quote. Now, that really gets to, again, not, not, not even just the Russian perspective, the perspective of so many European elites, so many of the Western powers, when they're looking at the Balkans. Is this, this region is very important, and so we can't possibly leave the decisions about what's going to happen there to the people who live there because who, you know, who trusts those crazy people, you know, the, who knows who these peasants are. We can't trust them with anything. You know, if, if you look at geopolitics today, you'll probably see a little bit of that same tendency, uh, you know, not to get into it too deep, but you'll, you'll know what I mean if you give it a thought anyway. So I think this is a quote that I just love. And I think we need to come back to that as Russia, as the great powers are really stepping in and helping to decide the fate of the Balkans throughout the 19th century, this is the key perspective. This is really how we need to frame the way in which these elites approach the Balkans. Now, talking about local elites, in Wallachia and Moldavia, two distinct elites began to develop. There was a rural elite that was deeply conservative because they made their money off the peasants, and so they didn't really want to upset the existing social order, and an urban elite that was increasingly sending its children to study in France, where they picked up new ideas. Though Misha Glenny points out that they seem to have internalized the nationalism part of the French Revolution without any of the democracy or equality bits. The elimination of the Fenariots as a ruling class meant that these elites were now functionally in charge, though obviously what they thought meant very little next to the whims of the great powers. And in particular, none of them cared what the peasants thought. But still, things are changing here, and barges on the Danube are beginning to send agricultural products to the west and return with furniture and clothes, very quickly changing the look of Vlachian and Moldavian cities. Previously, they had been forced to sell all of their produce to the Ottomans at fixed rates. So this opening up of Western markets following the Treaty of Adrianople had enormous consequences on the economic and intellectual life there. But this change also did not make Russia very happy because Russia wanted a client state in Wallachia and Moldavia. They did not want an economic competitor. So... You know, mixed bag there. But we are seeing how opening up to the West 
you know, forceful opening up in this case as a result of this war is very quickly changing these territories. Another line from Misha Glenny, which applies to Wallachia, Moldavia, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece, is, quote, Herein lies the start of the Balkan tragedy. These were peasant societies, poorly equipped to assimilate the ideas of the Enlightenment and located at the intersection of competing absolutist empires. The result was a stunted constitutional development whose shortcomings would inevitably be exploited by the great powers as competition between them intensified in the region in the second half of the 19th century. End quote. And that's where I got the title for this, because I think that's another really critical quote that just in a few sentences summarizes this whole period and exactly what is happening. It needs to really be remembered that even as we're talking about the development of some wealthy traders and local elites throughout the Balkans and in Bulgaria, that these are still overwhelmingly peasant societies. The vast majority of the populations, more than 90% are peasants. And that for that reason, the societies as a whole, even as the elites sometimes, not always, will get some of these ideas about constitutional government and, and ways of governing themselves that are radically different from the Ottoman reality that's been there for centuries, it's very, very hard to get those ideas across to the peasants in those societies. And we saw that in Greece, where yeah, there were these ideas and these attempts to create a radically different type of government. But to so many of the everyday Greeks, this is so radically different that it's beyond anything they can really you know, shift to. They're not ready to radically change how they're living overnight. And that this is going to have dramatic consequences over the next well, more than a century. Anyway, so that was a lot of kind of talking more generally about things. So now I want to pick back up in the chronology. And in this context, I want you to have this kind of in mind, right? Progress is being made, but looking at events within any of the up-and-coming Balkan states or regions without understanding the broader European and Ottoman context means missing the most important part and you know, missing those forces that are obscuring everything and, and changing things dramatically. And while the views of the great powers were overwhelmingly affected by geopolitics, as I've mentioned, I've also said that public opinion is starting to play a larger and larger role. Historian Donald Quaitert touches on the shifting perception of the Turkish people in the Ottoman realm in the West during this period, and how this perception of the Ottomans is affecting their perception of the empire, their perception of the Balkans, the perception of this whole area, and thereby affecting how these people feel politically, and thereby affecting how politicians in those countries are affected by public opinion. Quaitert wrote, quote, In the 19th century, Turkomania faded, to be replaced by yet other expressions of the Ottoman presence in European popular culture. The common motifs of cruelty, intrigue, jealousy, and savagery continued, Hence, the ready reception, according to the powerful British politician Gladstone's rantings against the, quote, Bulgarian horrors. Alongside this old, ruthless image emerged that of the amorous or the buffoon Turk. Now, in the 19th century, lustful Turks with enormous sex organs became an important feature of Victorian pornographic literature. Further, many Europeans, from Lord Byron to the novelist Pierre Loti to Lawrence of Arabia, came to consider the Ottoman Empire as the land of dreams where sexual or other fantasies could be realized. 
These three individuals and thousands of others sought escape from the tedium and monotony of modern industrial life in the imagined East, whether or not they traveled to the Ottoman realms. The painting of Delacroix, Goremi, and others abound in images of the exotic and erotic, the primitive, the savage, and the noble. End quote. So, it's in other words, it's complicated. Even without getting into you know Orientalism and some of these concepts, we can see that you know the way in which Ottoman the kind of Ottoman world is perceived is is really shifting. And you're starting to get, you know, maybe one thing in the newspapers and as as quite mentioned, another thing in say pornographic literature. But you know, I'm not just mentioning this for fun, I'm mentioning it because again, I need to emphasize that these perceptions are important. And for you know, for example, you know, getting a decent amount into the future, when William Gladstone talks about Ottoman abuses in Bulgaria you know, part of that is sexual abuses, right? Uh, sexual assaults and things by Ottoman soldiers and officials. And that is going to pick up on this existing perception of the, the lustful Turk and things. And, and so these existing perceptions that are being developed here in, you know, say the 1830s, 1840s, those are going to play a role in the 1870s in helping to shift public opinion to aid Bulgaria in its attempt to gain independence. So it's all kind of connected. And right now, all these cultural changes are really, you know, mixing around and starting to have an impact. Okay, now getting back, 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 keep saying it, but uh, kind of moving around here in this episode, but back to that chronological story. Despite the failure on the part of the Bulgarians to start a new revolt owing to a lack of Russian support, the Ottomans were undeniably on the back foot at this point. Right? They just lost a lot of territory, and they faced a revolt on the Aegean coast of Anatolia, and it should have been going on for two years at this point. But the Sultan was also in the midst of some very important reforms that could potentially revitalize the empire. Shaw's History of the Ottoman Empire explains how these reforms were going at this point, stating, quote, Progress was made, but it was very slow and the results were hardly adequate to rescue the army from the incompetence who continued to lead it long after the destruction of the Janissary Corps. Hence, by the end of 1828, the Ottoman army had about 50 active battalions in all, with an effective strength of between 30,000 and 35,000 officers and men, mainly in the Mansur and Hassa forces, with an additional 20,000 men in the feudal cavalry and the artillery and the innumerable irregulars subject to the sultan's call, but their organization, discipline, leadership, and training still were very questionable. End quote. So the Ottoman army is reforming, it's becoming more formidable, but it's still small and it's still got a lot of dysfunction, meaning the empire still has to rely on those aforementioned more violent and unpredictable irregular soldiers. We saw this with the use of Albanian irregulars in Greece and the resulting massacres, the resulting uh, abuses. As mentioned, it was also relying on Bulgaria to equip this new army, leading to a massive order of cloth from Smolyan in 1832 as one small example. Now, back in Greece, 1832 brought a final resolution to its status. Yet another London conference of the great powers, and then another Treaty of Constantinople later that year, agreed on the establishment of a kingdom of Greece under Prince Otto of Bavaria, who had finally accepted the role. 
In addition, the northern border of the kingdom was again adjusted for, to a kind of more favorable one than the one agreed previously, a little bit farther north. As usual, no Greek representatives were present or consulted in any of these actions. So even when something's happening that's favorable to Greece, no one cares what the Greeks have to say about it. Again, getting back to that quote, right? This is far too important to care about what the locals think. That means Greece was now the very first independent state to come out of the Ottoman territories in Europe. Remember, somehow, despite all the territorial back and forth that had happened over the past few centuries, everything lost by the Ottomans was either taken by another great power or made into a vassal state. Just, so despite all the wars between Russia and, uh, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and such, we now finally have a new independent state. But all was not well for the Greeks after winning full independence. The first president of Greece was attempting to centralize power in order to overcome all that internal strife that we have talked about that was so hobbling the country during its independence fight. Right? The president knew that for Greece to be powerful, for it to be successful, it needed to be more centralized and a bit more united. And well, for his efforts, he was faced with an insurrection in which the forces against him actually scuttled their entire fleet rather than allow the central government to gain control of it, which dramatically weakened Greece in a single stroke. And from there, within months, the president was assassinated, triggering a civil war that would last for three years. So again, we're seeing the challenge of imposing some sort of new order on a new Balkan state, you know, a new kind of European style centralized state with a president, da, 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 da. And this is the result, right? It's, it's bloodletting, it's civil war. It's all these folks who still have this kind of mindset and perspective left over from centuries of Ottoman rule, and they just can't give it up. It was only the arrival of Prince Otto that actually managed to end the bloodshed, but not before the great powers had all tried their best to take advantage of the chaos and further their influence in the young Greek state. Ultimately, Greece's German prince and liberal constitution simply couldn't overcome its internal divisions. It was yet another example, and it was yet another sign of what was to come with the other prospective Balkan states. Beyond being forced to accept Greece's full independence and struggling with his military transition, the problems facing Sultan Mahmud were also fast increasing. The ruler of Egypt, Muhammad Ali, had been eyeing Ottoman-controlled Syria for almost two decades at this point. But after all of his efforts to aid the Sultan in the war against Greece ended so disastrously with the Egyptian navy destroyed and none of the territories Ali had been promised actually coming to him because the whole thing failed, Muhammad Ali felt he was entitled to something. He asked the Sultan for Syria, but was again offered Crete. But Ali wasn't interested in gaining a territory that had been revolting for nearly a decade at this point. He wanted Syria, and he was not going to take no for an answer. Between late 1831 and mid-1832, Egyptian land and sea forces invaded, making quick gains and conquering most of the major cities of Syria and Palestine, all the while pushing aside Ottoman forces sent against them. By the end of 1832, the Egyptian army under Ali's son Ibrahim had advanced all the way into Anatolia itself, occupying Konya. The Sultan sent a force of 80,000 to stop Ibrahim before he threatened Constantinople itself. The Egyptians had only 15,000 men in Konya, with their remaining forces spread out occupying all the territory they had just conquered. 
And yet, despite a more than 5 to 1 advantage, the Egyptians completely routed the Ottomans and captured the Grand Vizier. The path was now wide open for an advance on Constantinople itself. And, well, you can probably guess what happened next. The European powers got involved. The Russians in particular were hardly enthused over the idea of the Egyptians breaking up the Ottoman Empire, throwing all their carefully made plans for influence in the region into chaos. They worked with the Austrians to pressure Ali to stop the campaign immediately. While the elderly ruler in Cairo agreed, his impetuous son, who had been leading the campaign all along, did not. And so, Ibrahim resumed the advance. Soon, the Egyptian army was just 250 kilometers from the Ottoman capital, but a particularly cold winter set in, forcing Ibrahim to halt his advance. This brought the Ottomans enough time to sign a formal alliance with Russia, and soon Russian naval and land forces were in place to defend Constantinople. Again, what a tremendously weird change of events. You know, just a few years after Russian forces are ready to take Constantinople, they're now defending it. Well, the Egyptians likely couldn't overcome the setback, but to make things worse for them, other powers intervened before things could escalate even further. So although the Russians were ready to fight to protect Constantinople, European powers did not want even that fight to happen. Why? Well, simply that they were wary of the kind of influence Russia could gain by effectively saving the Ottomans from destruction. And so the European powers forced an agreement to end the war. The concerns of the great powers were many and varied. Russian control of the Straits, as well as a powerful Egyptian empire, which could potentially control British shipping and communications with India, none of these were acceptable for the other powers. However, despite these concerns, Britain in particular did not get deeply involved enough to really influence the result of the ending of the war. Ultimately, the Convention of Kutaya, The final agreement ending the war was actually far more generous to the Egyptians than the powers would have wanted, but it did avoid their worst-case scenario. Ali gained effective control of Syria and Adana, a part of southeastern Anatolia bordering Syria. These territories were added to Egypt, Sudan, Yemen, Palestine, and the Hejaz, which is where Mecca and Medina are located, which Egypt already controlled. Now, for the first time in over three centuries, the Ottomans actually didn't really control Jerusalem. Ironic, considering they had actually taken it from the Egyptian Mamluks all the way back in 1516. But we also can't forget about the Russians. Their aid against the Egyptians may not have been needed, but despite it being in their interest, their help was never going to be free. Thus, in 1833, they concluded the Treaty of Hunkar Ikerese. This was effectively a defensive alliance between Russia and the Ottomans, which made the Ottomans almost a sort of protectorate of Russia. It was, again, a remarkable change for two states that had been at war just four years previously. But more worrying was a secret provision of the treaty, which allowed for the closing of the Dardanelles to non-Russian ships. Although the exact meaning of the provision is still debated to this day, Overall, this treaty was eye-opening and greatly alarmed the British and French, who again hadn't really gotten that involved up to this point, but were very concerned about Russian influence in Constantinople. It seems they finally began to appreciate the importance of the Ottoman Empire to their greater colonial aims. Thus, the British in particular engaged in a very sudden about-face. 
They now stated that they were firmly committed to the preservation of the Ottoman Empire and increased their regional military presence with the explicit aim of helping to curtail rising Egyptian power. They also resolved to increase economic relations with the Ottomans to help prop them up financially. Soon, Austria and Prussia joined in proclaiming their joint opposition to any increase in Egypt's power. The shift from seeing the Ottomans as a threat to Europe to seeing them as a prop in great power politics is now, in my mind, really just complete. And in thinking about this shift, I keep coming back to Misha Glenny's quote, the fate of such a crucial region could not possibly be left to the people who happened to live there. Now, this applies just as much to Bulgaria as it did to Syria, or Egypt for that matter. The changes occurring in the Middle East and North Africa may have been very different from those in the Balkans, but the approach of the great powers to them was almost identical. And in this light, the challenges facing the ever-increasing number of Bulgarians determined to win an independent nation-state were myriad and ever-growing. They needed to increase national feeling amongst the Bulgarian population, they needed to find a way to defeat the Sultan's army, and most of all, they had to convince the great powers that a strong and independent Bulgaria was in their interest. Ultimately, ironically, it would be that last challenge that would matter the most. Next time, we'll see the Bulgarian national revival progress further, and more attempts at following up on the successes of the Serbian and Greek revolts. Meanwhile, Sultan Mahmud will try to make more progress with his reforms before it's too late. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. Like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, all that good stuff, and you'll see more great content that we're posting there all the time. So thank you all so much, and I'll catch you in the next one.